everybody and welcome to another episode of me watching a bunch of Disney movies. Not too many movies this week, to be honest with you. I only watched 10, um, but I, I talk about some of them for quite some time. Uh, we've got some some really big heavy hitters in, uh, in this episode, including a new perfect score movie. Um, I'll be perfectly honest, wasn't expecting that one to be a perfect movie by my ranking, but I'll be damned if it isn't fucking phenomenal. So there you go. Um, I did a quick count uh, on terms of what we have left. There are 37 movies after these 10 that uh, remain on my list to consume with my eye holes. I have seen more... I've seen enough Disney content to last me a lifetime. Um, and I still need to watch quite a bit more. So we're getting there. We're slowly but surely getting there. And uh, and yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. These are a lot of fun to make if they if not... Uh, rather time-consuming because you know you can you can kind of cheat it a little bit, but by and large, I gotta sit there for the length of the thing and uh, and watch it. And uh, it takes takes a bit out of you, especially when you do like three to four in a day, and you're just like, oh boy. Anyway, let's get into this review podcast. The reluctant dragon, man, this dragon's so reluctant. It was it caused the movie to be reluctant to make itself. That's the good joke. It's not even a movie, really. It is a dramatized look into the Walt Disney Animation Studio in the early '40s, like as it was getting its sea legs under it. You can see that they're in the process of making a couple of uh, Disney movies, like Peter Pan and Fantasia and stuff like that in this movie um and then of course production got offset because of world war ii um but it is an interesting look into how they made movies back then like the multiplane camera and stuff like that i thought was pretty fun it's riddled with sexism and racism but of course it is because it's the it's like 1941 is when this thing was made the titular reluctant dragon short because that's basically what it is it's about 20 minutes long uh is fine I mean, I hesitate to call this a movie. It's more of like a a weird fictionalized documentary with a short at the end. It's not really a movie. Um, it's interesting if you like to see how movies were made back in the day, or movies are made kind of at all. Um, then th- you know there there's some entertainment to be gained from here. I don't know how accurate it truly is. And I'm relatively confident there are much more uh, or much better uh, documentaries for filmmaking than this. So there's that. I'm not really sure who this is made for. Really diehard Disney fans, I guess. Maybe. It's a strange one, to be sure. Um, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it was interesting until the Reluctant Dragon bit, and then I just kind of got bored. So... 4 out of 10. I mean, the Reluctant Dragon... I mean, I just kind of skipped over that stuff, to be honest. I just like fast-forwarding. It just wasn't It wasn't very entertaining. Um, I enjoyed seeing the technology of the day. That's what I enjoyed about it. Um, but, I mean, that wasn't any more complicated than pointing a camera at another camera and then being like, this is a camera. And then for me to be like, oh, that's neat. So, yeah, 4 out of 10 seems appropriate for the Reluctant Dragon. The Rescuers is a weird one. Objectively, it's 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 okay, but there's something about that movie that kind of puts it over the top, like into into being better than average. Um, perhaps it is the unreasonably dark um, tone of the film, and it's labeled as a comedy, and I don't know why, because. The plot of the movie is basically this woman named Madame Medusa who has kidnapped an orphan and brought her to the bayou to go into a fucking hole in the ground to fetch a pirate's diamond and the and she's got like a very short window to do that at low tide because that cave fills with water and then that little child will drown. So that's dark as hell. Um, the idea of mice you know in this kind of rescue agency thing um i'm sure inspired the rescue rangers um with with chip and dale and all that stuff uh 
I looked up the cast, and it's Bob Newhart and Ava Gabor, who are two of the most um, prolific actors of the 20th century. And they do fine. Um, I mean, Newhart was, wasn't particularly very funny. Um, but I enjoyed the, the, it it feels nostalgic, um, to have like those voices be these roles. This is a very cozy movie in, in a lot of ways. There are, I think five songs, um, in the movie, but they're not sung by the characters in the film. They're just played over the top, um, like music videos. Uh, and they all have this kind of like jazzy, um, you know what they all sound like and feel like? And I think this is why I think it's a cozy movie. They all sound like the, uh, theme song to the joys of painting with Bob Ross. And usually when there's a song playing, there's some really good, like oil painted backgrounds that we're seeing as well. So it feels like joys of painting the movie. It's got that kind of seventies jazz chill vibe to it. Which is probably why I liked it so much was those moments reminded me a lot of like those those moments in like a Studio Ghibli movie where like nobody's talking, right? But the music and the visuals of the film help carry the mood of what you're seeing and they tell their own story. Um, and I liked that a lot, uh, quite frankly. Um, uh, apparently also in the original cut of this movie, there is like two frames of footage where they're flying by a window and you see like a topless chick um, in the background. That is not in, obviously, in this version of the movie. Apparently they edited that out after, um, like for every home release from 1999 onward. So if you have like a goddamn original cut of this shit, then you might be able to find it, but otherwise you're not gonna see it. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty good. An uncomfortable amount of of not okay art in this movie. Um, the, the, in my opinion, the titular character of Penny is shown in compromising positions way too often. Um, and that's not okay in any stretch of the imagination. So I wasn't a big fan of that. So get, the movie loses points for, for that, um, for sure, because that's just, that wasn't great. Um, but the joys of painting moments were really nice. So I think it all comes out in the wash to like a six out of ten. Um, it's 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 in my opinion, it's above average. It's a little snoozy. It's definitely not gonna put you on the edge of your seat. Um, but I don't know. There's just there's just something about it where I was just like, these these songs are just really pleasant, and uh, it's like a Sunday afternoon kind of movie. Um, yeah, that also this all being said. Unless I completely forget this movie, I don't feel the immediate need to see this for a very, very, very long time. I feel like it's you, you see it, you witnessed it, and then I just kind of nod my head in affirmation, and then I go, all right, now let's go to Australia. I think a lot like Anastasia, Rescuers Down Under for me was always hyped up. Like everybody was like, I was like, oh man, it's so good. It's so much better than the first one. No fucking in it. So it's, there's a couple of interesting things about Rescuers Down Under. One, it was made, um, or it was, it was like stated to be made. Um, uh, the year Crocodile Dundee came out right in 1986 and then it didn't come out until four years later you know right when the world was really interested in australian culture strike while the iron is tepid right so i mean that was that was the you know there's the catalyst for it this is also walt disney animation studios first sequel like this is this is an official disney movie not a disney tunes straight to dvd sequel this was the first Disney sequel was the rescuers down under of all the things Disney had done up until that point rescuers down under is what they decided to do their first official sequel with fun fact Disney has created three direct sequels in its main studio rescuers down under Fantasia 2000 and frozen 2 and that's it Every other Disney sequel was done by a technically different studio. So I thought that was kind of interesting. 
Um, it's also the first movie to be done fully digital. They used a program called CAPS, Computer Animated Program Software or something like that. I can't fucking remember. Um, but it allowed them to animate completely on computers. And um, it, was the, it was the first first movie to do that. Um, all those fun facts aside, I, bas- I, I wanted to use this movie as, a, uh, as an example for my rating system. Every movie starts at a five. If your movie doesn't have anything great going on and it doesn't have anything terrible going on, it gets a five. Five is my baseline of it's like you made a, a competent movie. It's an average film. So every movie starts at a five. I hit play on a movie, it gets a five. If it is unwatchable garbage, it swiftly drops to a zero and then I stop it. And if it's amazing, I watch the entire thing and it jumps to a ten. That's how I, that's how I do it. So this movie had a couple of moments where just kind of straight up, I was knocking points off. Um, Joanna the Lizard got a whole point off, taken off for being insufferably annoying. Um, the lack of consistency when it came to animal scale, it got a point off. I'm not counting the eagle because the whole point of the fucking eagle is that it's enormous. So that one's fine. For me, it's that fucking sugar glider. There are three mice on the back of that sugar glider. And for that one scene, those mice are less than an inch tall. In order for that scale to work out. Because sugar gliders are not that big. They are about the same size as fucking mice. And in order for that to work out, they had to shrink those mice down to be so fucking small. It's ludicrous. So lost a point there. Alright, we're down to a three. What else? We're going to set our movie in Australia. Okay. Pretty much the entire cast of characters is native to Australia. How many Australian accents did I count? Two. And where were they? In the fucking Crocodile Dundee Mouse and the Koala. Everybody else was either British or American. And that inconsistency lost at another point. Now we're down to a two. The final fucking stroke was that this did not need to be a rescuer's movie. Alright, Bernadette and Bernard, or whatever the fuck they're called, do nothing for this plot. Like, absolutely nothing. It could have... I don't know what it could have been, but it's just like, they, they're barely there. Vast majority of the movie is about this kid fighting like a poacher. And that's it. So, like... I don't I don't understand this movie. I don't understand why they felt this one this one needed to be done. Animation-wise, it's fine. Musically, it's fine. None of those awesome moments of the Bob Ross feel from the first movie are in this at all. They're all ripped out. You know, it's I don't I don't get it. I don't know why this movie is as popular as it is. A lot of the reviews I was reading said it was like really violent as well. I didn't see a lot of that either. Sure, there's a lot of like, like gun stuff, and the final scene where he threatens to kill the kid by feeding him to crocodiles is is pretty, you know, not great. But fucking, I don't know. It didn't seem all that violent to me. I've seen far more violent films on this very list, so I didn't get that at all. So yeah, when it's all said and done, the rescuer's down under escapes with a one out of ten. It got a one by my by my numbering system. I just explained to you. Because of all the things it lost, and it had nothing really in the positives, it brings it down to a 1. I do like Giant Eagles, but that's not enough. That is not nearly enough. It is barely watchable, for, from, from my point of view. It is barely watchable. And it's made even more sad that this is the final film that Eva Gabor was ever in. Five years later, after this movie came out, she died. Fucking Bob Newhart, against all logic and reason is still alive and kicking at the ripe old age of 91. I'm pretty sure. He might have been 71. How old is Bob Newhart? I think he's 90. Bob Newhart is... Yep, 91 years old. Born in 1929. Dude's old. So yeah, rescue. the first Rescuers movie is better than the second one. It is more classically Disney. The villain is darker. The, the child character is way more likable. Her story is a lot more emotionally heavy. The fucking mice in that movie make sense and actually have a purpose. First one. First one. The first rescuer beats the second one any day of the week. 
This some, some people are going to be like, oh, you're just being a contrarian. I'm telling you, from from what I look for in a movie, I prefer the first one. And by all accounts, the first one was more financially successful than the second one. So, I don't understand why the second one is as popular as it is, but my money's on that giant eagle because I'm sure I saw this as a kid. I, like, I remembered the eagle when I was a child. It's like the exact same fucking eagle that they used in Pocahontas. You know, for Colors of the Wind, they look identical. But then again, I suppose they are both eagles, and they're both gold eagles. So what am what am I even what am I even saying? Um, if you're gonna set your goddamn movie in Australia, your entire fucking cast should be Australian. What's like the first thing anybody thinks of when they think of Australia? It's the fucking accent. They have a very particular way of speaking. It's a fantastic way of speaking. I wanted an entire Disney movie of people sounding like they're fucking from Australia. Not this fake British shit that Mary Poppins did. Because that's the other bit that really bothered me. Not only were they not Australian accents, they weren't consistent accents. Whole thing was just terrible. One out of ten is generous. Now, Robin Hood is a goddamn Disney movie like the the middle of the 70s is when robin hood came out bracketed by things like aristocats and jungle book and it's really really easy to see the parallels between all of those movies um but i think because so what's what's interesting about the 70s when it comes to disney is that they are um the product of what's his name one of the one of the original nine old men um was the director of a string of movies in the 70s, and his name was Wolfgang Reitherman. Wolfgang Reitherman. Um, and he was either... He's been animating since the beginning, right? Um, let me let me pull it up. So he, he hopped on in 1934, um, and then was an animator in Snow White Onward, and then he directed from... Let's see... 101 Dalmatians to, uh, uh, let's see, The Rescuers. And then he was a co-producer on Fox and the Hound before he died in 1985. Yeah. So, this dude is responsible for 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, Jungle Book, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, The Rescuers, and Fox and the Hound. He had a hand in all of those things. And, um, including every Disney movie that came before it. So... You can really tell, especially when he was at the directing helm, the 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 fucking crossovers um, between all of these movies. Not only from like animation and the way the characters look and move, um, but in terms of voice actors as well. I mean, Phil Harris is in like every single one of those movies, um, and he's you know he was Blue. He's um, uh, fucking uh, Thomas O'Malley from the Aristocats, like. And he's Little John in this. And Baloo and Little John are essentially the same character. Um, but, the, but the thing about, about Robin Hood, for me at least, is even though it has all of these similarities to all of these other Disney movies that Wolfgang worked on, I think this is the, the, the best of his, his formula. Um, I mean, Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh is very different from all of those other movies and kind of stands alone. And I believe I gave that one a 10 out of 10. Um, but it's still the same director and Robin Hood because it is similar to all the other ones and it takes some of like the best elements of those things um, on top of it being funny um, I loved the intro where it like showed all of the like here's the character and here's the actor portraying them I thought that was awesome um, as, a, as, a, as a voice actor fanatic I, I very much appreciated that knowing who everybody was like Peter Ustinov as a Prince John was a was a lot of fun and um i thought that intro was was very different and very awesome um i loved the characterization of the love story between robin hood and maid marion they were childhood sweethearts um like from way back in the day and then she moved away and they fell they had a falling out you know and then when they finally met again after all these years it was revealed that they still loved each other um, and I thought that was incredibly sweet. And there's a great little song where it's just them just kind of like hanging out, similar to like, can you feel the love tonight? Um, but it's just, it's it's an incredibly sweet scene. And it feels like a very good, 
um, depiction of their relationship. So often in Disney movies, it's always like, you know, the destined prince and princess story. But these, it didn't feel like that. It, like, made Marion, I believe, is, like, technically a princess. But it's just kind of, like, shrug. Um, not, not really. And it's more about that they knew each other when they were younger. And, um, kind of got together. And I, I liked that a lot. It's, it's very different from the classic Disney formula of the love story. Prince John has to be one of the strangest villains Ever the thumb sucking thing is just bizarre. Um, what a weird choice for that character to do, uh, but it fits the character well. And the sheriff of Nottingham is an excellent villain because not only is he like bumbling and an idiot, but when he does like all those taxation scenes when he takes like what little these people have just makes you angry. And I'm like, that's good villainy right there. So because of all of those reasons, I'm thinking nine out of ten. Like. It's it's excellent. It is it is one of the one of the best Disney movies out there, for sure. Um, I give this movie a lot of crap for the somewhat lazy songwriting of Udalali, um, but that's kind of forgivable almost because some of the other songs in this movie are still written by whoever wrote that one. Who is it? Roy Moore, um, who wrote the fucking music for this shit? Roger Miller. I wasn't even close. Roger Miller wrote the music for this shit. Um, and, like, he did uh, all of those things. Um, the the love song was actually written by Floyd Huddleston and George Bruns, who did the score for the movie. Um, it was sung by Nancy Adams. That's probably the best song in the film. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of great music in here. And it, it all kind of helps to service the story and continue going on. Um... Really, there isn't much keeping it from a, a perfect score, um, if I if I stand to think about it. Almost by default, almost by default, it might it might go there. If I can't think of a good reason to prevent it from being a ten out of ten, I really liked it. I thought the animation was really good. I thought the music was great. I thought the acting was good. I loved the story. I loved the love story. I loved what happened to the villains in the end. I love how it ended with, like, a nice, neat bow. I loved the narration throughout the whole thing from the fucking rooster. Um, because that reminded me of, like, the... It reminded me of the snowman from, um... Uh, Rudolph. This movie really does seem to pull elements from a lot of different sources. But it does it in a really well-designed way. It does it awesomely. And, I, I mean... If I were to if I were to show somebody a classic Disney movie, I feel like this would be the one. I feel like this one takes all of the elements I would come to expect from a Disney movie and does it exceptionally well. So you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give Robin Hood a ten out of ten. I I fucking loved it. I can't believe. It has been so long since I've seen this. And unlike most of the movies on this list, I could turn this shit on right the fuck now and have just as much fun watching it a second, third, fourth, and fifth time that I did the first time. So Robin Hood gets the gets the illustrious 8 out of 10 and becomes, my, to my recollection, my 8th perfect movie on the Disney list. Congratulations, Robin Hood. You fucking killed it. You came out of surprise and knocked me off my feet. Let's move on to the next one. Saludos, amigos was a movie from 1943 designed to combat the presence and the uh, cultural impact Nazi Germany was having on South America. Um, This was a movie sponsored by the Department of State and bankrolled by Norman Rockefeller, where Walt Disney and 20 animators, musicians, and storytellers flew to various parts of South America to capture various stories. Um, and essentially it plays as propaganda. It is, it's positive propaganda for sure. It's talking about how awesome South America is and various parts of their histories and cultures, uh, from like the, the Incan culture in Peru to the, uh, Samba culture of, uh, Rio de Janeiro, the Gauchos of Argentina. It kind of bounces around. It does all those stuff. And then it takes those, uh, lessons that the, uh, 20 or so people learned from uh, South America and turns them into a couple of animated shorts, including one where uh, Goofy's a cowboy, another one where Donald meets um, Jose Carriaco, or uh, however you pronounce his name, the green parrot 
who is I mean that's two thirds of the cast of um the three caballeros right there um and we'll get to that movie later on this is the shortest uh feature length film Disney ever produced it's 42 minutes long which barely qualifies it to be a television special by today's standards um it's interesting it, it kind of plays like a documentary but it's very it's very it's weird once you know the history of this thing is war propaganda basically trying to showcase how awesome um south america is not only to uh north american audiences but also to uh show um south america like the love of disney and the power of disney um i mean walt disney's in this movie as well he doesn't talk but he's there uh and it's it's interesting um it's not bad it's just different um yeah i don't know it's <laughs> it's so politically charged it's hard to like you know look at it as a let me put it this way nobody's putting salados amigos on for entertainment um, I think it was, it, it, it definitely served a purpose and, um, people had a, had a positive reaction to this thing in 1943. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a weird one. That's for sure. So I don't know. Five out of 10. I mean, it's hard to rate it as a movie cause it's not a movie. It is, it is, it is pure propaganda. That is that is exactly what this is by sheer definition. Um, it is it is propaganda. You know, not all propaganda is, is uh, supposed to. You know, we'll we'll dick we'll picture you know a, a culture or something like that in negative light. Positive stuff like this is still technically propaganda. Media designed to make you think in a certain way. You know what I mean? That's propaganda. So five out of ten for the South American propaganda, um, which is. Mostly positive. Um, I have no idea if it's wholly accurate. I don't... I mean, I, I presume that was somewhat their goal um, to be to be accurate and representative of the of the local culture. And um, I think... I was, I was really worried going into this that it would be... It'd be super racist. Um, I don't think it's... It is super racist. I think it it draw it toes the line a couple of times, but overall, I don't think it's a super racist. Um, certainly not the most racist thing I've seen on this list. I'm looking at you. Um, oh, what was it even called? Uh, what was it called? The shit. What was it? It was it was recent. I watched something that was basically racist. What the fuck was it? I can't remember. Oh, the Reluctant Dragon. That was way more racist. Um, than uh, Saludos Amigos. So, yeah, it's a strange one. It's the sixth movie. All, yeah, five out of ten seems appropriate. It's not going to blow your socks off. Um, and indeed, it's not really a movie. But if you're curious about one of the things that Disney created in response to World War II and the Nazis... Then look no further than Saludos Amigos. So I also don't really think. I mean, this movie did some of its uh, some of its jobs where North American audiences and South American audiences and Central American audiences were were fonder of each other. Um, but a lot of Nazis still fleed to South America. So I mean, a Disney movie can't solve all the problems. I guess it's a strange it's a strange thing to be talking about in this in this podcast. Let me put it that way. One of the many examples of a movie on this list that is not a Disney movie but has since become a Disney movie is the Simpsons movie. And, you know, I was saying to myself um, as I was watching this movie that, like, I can't make exceptions. I, I just can't. Exceptions to my to the rules shouldn't, shouldn't exist because otherwise they're not rules. But at the same time, you know, rules aren't always 100% true. Um, so I just finished working out. But... Any movie that requires you to have witnessed the source material or to have read the source material tends to have problems because you can't really do that. If you're a piece of material, of media, whether it's a book, a movie, a play, whatever, relies on the audience having pre-existing knowledge, 
then what you've done is you've restricted the number of people who have access to your piece of media. Now, if there's any intellectual property that can get away with that, it's probably The Simpsons, which has been around for a very long time, and it is arguably the most successful animated television show ever made. Just, just kind of flat out, because they're still making it. It is still on the air. Now, the problem from a show like this, and this is what Family Guy is going to run into, because they're apparently making a Family Guy movie at some point, is that a show that is essentially designed to be a satirical pop culture generating show where most of its material comes from being topical of the day is that eventually it will all be dated. Eventually your references just won't land as strongly as they did back in the day. And that's one of the things you experience with the Simpsons movie is that most of its pop culture stuff is pretty dated. Most of its humor is pretty dated. There's a lot of homophobia in this movie. Um, which should never have been allowed, quite frankly. Uh, also, Homer is objectively an absolutely terrible father. Like, flat out. Especially in this movie. He is incompetent and the worst. But of course, because it's Homer and it's The Simpsons, he gets forgiven and all is well that ends well. Such is, such is the way of things. It's weird because the movie toes the line of like getting into some hard-hitting good subject matters and then it just kind of it doesn't stick the landing it does them halfway like bart's um issues with homer as his dad and seeking a father figure elsewhere and with like ned flanders is just like it's a pretty decent b plot and i very much enjoy that and it's something that should happen because homer's awful especially because he abuses bart all the fucking time um that just kind of falls flat and doesn't have like a satisfying conclusion you know what i mean so, the movie kind of teases at those those heavier tar topics. Or Marge leaving Homer because she's had enough of his shit. She just goes right back to him at the end of the film because he does, like, one thing somewhat competently. You know, it's just like, well, on one hand, it's The Simpsons, and yeah, it's all about that, really. Um, but on the other hand, I'm like, if you're going to do those things, you should do those things. You know? Have, have, a, have it be a, a satisfactorial ending to your more intense story plot but by and large it just doesn't do that um it's a decent film um albert brooks who plays the bad guy russ cargill um is phenomenal i really wish it was hank scorpio um which is a character that albert brooks played in the tv show and i believe it was originally supposed to be hank scorpio um but then i think somebody had the stupid sentence of nobody knows who that is so let's come up with somebody else that nobody knows and I'm like, either way, people don't know who your villain is. You might as well have gone with Hank Scorpio because some people did. And if you're going to draw your line at Hank Scorpio, people don't remember who that is. Then I argue that your whole fucking show, your premise of your movie's dumb. Because this entire thing really does rely on you having that previous knowledge. Otherwise, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that just straight up don't make any fucking sense. And you're sitting there watching characters who you don't know anything about being like, Why the fuck is there a clown that's eating a burger? I don't understand. And, honest to God, count the number of times a character's name is said. It relies so heavily on your, on your previous knowledge. If any other movie had this many characters that never told you anything about them... You'd be confused and furious. And so, because of that, I can't let The Simpsons skate by. Sure, it's The Simpsons. Have I watched it pretty much my entire life? Absolutely. Do I know who all these characters are? Absolutely. Is anybody going to go see The Simpsons movie who hasn't seen the show? Possibly. I mean, you know, I, I think I'm talking about the minority of audiences here when it comes to this movie and the knowledge of the characters, but I can't make exceptions, you know? It's the exact same reason why the Proud Family movie didn't work. It's the exact same reason why the Recess movie for me did. But at the end of the day, I felt the Recess movie... Well, I mean, you get an idea of who these characters are because they're archetypes, just like Recess. You don't exactly need to have that previous knowledge in order to appreciate this film. Um, it does a fair enough job on its own legs, but it is it is the king of uh, relying on previous knowledge. Especially for all of its in-jokes um, that you can't get unless you've seen like every fucking season of the show up until this point. Um, so, yeah, there you go. 
uh, as a movie itself, it's fine. Um, in terms of turning one of the most iconic television shows into a movie, we couldn't have really asked for much better. That's a hard thing to do at the best of times, and I feel like they did a pretty decent job in selling that book. So because of all that, because it's, you know, it's fine, it's a little dated, um, I think it's going to sit pretty right there in the middle. I'm going to give this movie a 5 out of 10. It's got a lot of things working against it. It's got a couple of things working for it. That's pretty much, that's pretty much, you know, your, your pros and cons. It gets you're right in the middle, 5 out of 10. It's not the best, it's not the worst. If you like The Simpsons, you'll probably think it's funny. If you don't like The Simpsons, then there's really nothing there for you. Sleeping Beauty is definitely one of those old school classics because it's like the sixth or it's it, you know 1959 so while while ago while ago that movie was was made what number are you in terms of the you're the 16th movie okay um this is kind of closer to the start of um wolfgang Rietherman's uh tyranny in in disney because he he kind of controlled that shit from like 60s to the late 70s um and produced some of the finest disney movies including robin hood um, it's okay, Sleeping Beauty. It's fine. I mean, shrug. Nothing. It's not gonna blow your goddamn mind. Um, it starts off, you know, like when she's a child and she gets all the blessings and curses and stuff like that. Then the movie fast forwards sixteen years. Maleficent has this this fucking group of fuckers, um, like little hench people that like do all of her bidding, like the hyenas for Scar. You know, they just like do all of her stuff. And, um. I, so I, I hon. So the kingdom destroyed all the spinning wheels once the curse was made, and then I missed this bit. If it explained it in the movie, but the fairies take away the princess anyway, for some reason to protect her from Maleficent, conceivably. Um, and then uh, the rest of the movie basically takes place within a forty-eight hour period. Sleeping Beauty is asleep for, like, maybe six hours. Maybe six hours. Um, and the titular Sleeping Beauty castle is built for her and Prince Philip, who, you know, arranged marriage since they were born, and then uh, Philip's dad was like, I'm going to build a castle, and so he builds a castle. And that's the titular Sleeping Beauty castle. Um, but honest to God... Uh, like, Aurora goes back to her parents' castle. The fa fairies don't tell her parents that she's there. Instead, they just leave her in a room by herself for some reason. Then Maleficent shows up and gets... And hypnotizes Aurora to prick her finger on the spinning wheel. And then she's unconscious for, like, six hours. During which time, Philip goes back to the cottage to try to find her. Gets kidnapped by Maleficent. Maleficent fucking brags to Philip about how, you know... She'll let him go in like a hundred years and then he can go be with Aurora or something like that for some reason. That doesn't get explained. And then the fairies show up and honest to God show why having magical characters on your side is just a broken story thing. Because they solve like all of his escaping problems with magic because of course they do. Maleficent turns into a dragon which is pretty dope but then is taken out by Philip and honest to God like fucking 40 seconds of screen time. It's an incredibly quick fight. And then he just goes upstairs and kisses Aurora. And then that's it. And then they get married and that's the end of the movie. The movie's very much up its own asshole about Once Upon a Dream. Which is a great song. Don't get me wrong. But they sing it like six times in the movie. It's like we came up with this one really good song. So we're just going to keep going with our greatest hits. It's the exact same thing they did with Jungle Book. Where it's like, boy, you like the bare necessities? Well, get ready to hear that shit four times in the same fucking movie. And then they did it even more in the sequel. Oh my god. So, yeah, it's it's fine. The background animations, like the, the matte paintings, are gorgeous. Um, visually, it's, it's a phenomenal film. It takes about 20 minutes of its screen time having Sleeping Beauty talk to some woodland critters because Snow White, you know, like they couldn't, they couldn't get away from that. But honest to god, I thought she spent way more time being asleep. She, the whole, it's called Sleeping Beauty. She's asleep for six hours, maybe. Maybe six hours. Definitely no more than a day. 
absolutely no more than a single fucking day. I thought this was like some Rumpelstiltskin shit where she was asleep for like 30 years, but no. In the Disney movie, she's barely asleep. It's not even a full night's sleep. It's an extended nap. Like, it's nothing. Maleficent spent 16 years looking for her, failing, only because her hunch bunch people don't realize that she has aged in that time period and they're not looking for a child anymore. Or a baby, rather. It's it's a flabbergasting movie. And just, you know what? I'll say this. Unlike Cruella DeVille, who has very little screen time and virtually does nothing worthy of the fucking iconic reception her character has gotten in recent, no, since that movie came out. Maleficent has a incredible character design, is much more imposing, showcases legitimate power, um, and then turns into a fucking dragon. So Maleficent's dope as hell. She's also not on screen very often, but when she is on screen, it is like a commanding kind of presence on screen. Um, so I enjoyed that. In fact, I enjoyed Maleficent in those movies so goddamn much that I kind of want to watch the Angelina Jolie Maleficent movies. So hey, there's that. This is as solid a five as you can get. It's got some fucking comedy moments with the fairies being like bumbling whatever's um, outside of Once Upon a Dream, the music's okay. The background matte art is incredible. Um, quite frankly, I, I, I could see some of those. You take the characters out, like the cell characters out, and you just have those mats. Fucking gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's not, it is definitely not the best princess movie. And indeed, um, Disney Studios did not return to classic princess fairy tale stories like this until The Little Mermaid in 1997 when did the little mermaid come out so there was like a good 30 year gap between this movie um 1989 all right there was a good 20 year gap between um sleeping beauty and uh little mermaid it was it was a long time before they came back to this formula um and in my opinion there were some really excellent movies that were made in between i'm looking at you robin hood um yeah it's fine Animation wise, it's it's okay. It just it just stinks of um Snow White. Like even the whole waking up with true love's kiss thing, like it just it just plays like Snow White. And in my opinion, I mean I haven't seen I haven't seen Sleeping Beauty in you know fucking decades since I was a child. Um and I haven't seen Snow White in roughly the same amount of time. So it's it's gonna it's gonna depend. But it very much does feel like, hey, people loved Snow White. That was really successful. Let's just do that again with a different story. Um, more so than like any of the other princess movies, in my opinion. This one really does just seem like a... You got the sneaking into the animals. You got the random dancing scenes. You got like the couple of songs, Awakened by True Love's Kiss. Like It's just the same fucking story. So I will give credit to this movie for having one of the only mother characters... She's not there a lot, to be perfectly honest with you. But the mom does not die. The mom isn't vilified in this film. She's just kind of there. Um, does she lend anything to the story? No. But she's still a character and is still alive by the end of this. So, there you go. Um, yeah. Also, this movie um, has the fucking quirky horse character. This may be the first movie with the quirky horse character. But boy, does Disney love their quirky horses. Looking at you, Tangled. Looking at you, Sven. Disney loves their quirky pack animals. Can't get enough of them. Sleeping Beauty gets a solid 5 out of 10. Now to watch some Christmas shit. Have you ever asked yourself, how did Jesus and Mary get to the manger? Well then, the small one's for you. It's a 25-minute featurette that was apparently tied with the reissuing of Pinocchio several years ago. Uh, directed and animated by Don Bluth of all people back when he used to work for Disney before he got jaded and shat on and then he left um honest to god it's the story about a guy a kid who likes a donkey and they try to sell the donkey and no one buys the donkey and then Joseph shows up and he's like why is that donkey for sale and the guy's like sure and Joseph's like I'll buy the hell out of that donkey here's a nickel and then the boy's like hooray and then that's the end of the bit it has absolutely I mean I suppose it does have something to do with Christmas, but it's so, it's so bizarre. Um, it's, it's like, here's the big story about the birth of Jesus, right? Now, 
Who's ever wondered where that one animal in the manger, the donkey, came from? Let's do a whole unnecessarily long, sad backstory about the donkey, complete with three fucking songs. Let's make that happen. And then uh, they did, and they called it the small one. I thought it was going to be about the little drummer boy, but I was wrong. It's about a fucking donkey named the small one. Um, I mean, it plays like a Disney movie. You know, it's got the, the singing intro and all that shit. It's well animated because it's Don Bluth, and Don Bluth is a great animator. Um, the songs are fine. It's just, it literally is just a story about a boy who likes a donkey and then has to sell the donkey to Joseph so that Jesus can be born. Um, and that's it. So, I mean, if you're, I don't know who this is for. If you're, <laughs> if you're teaching Sunday school and you need, uh, an entertaining 25 minute featurette to tell the lesson of the donkey that transported the, the son of God, then there you go. A small one is right up your alley. Um, if you're literally anybody else, though, there's really nothing to gain from this. It's not bad. It's just... It just is. It just is. And because it just is, it gets... I mean... I like Sleeping Beauty more, but the thing is that this does not technically fail at all. It's just boring. So, it gets a 5 out of 10. It just doesn't, it just didn't do anything for me. I was just kind of like, yep, that's, this is what I expected. It's a story about a donkey. And then, um, I watched it and now I've seen it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's the end of that chapter. Where it all began. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, 1937. 1937. When is when this all began? But one of the things I liked about this movie is that it starts off with a with a title screen crawl that's like, "Hey guys, thanks for thanks for helping me on this project, Walt Disney." And I'm like, "Ah, that's sweet," because you know, first full length uh, animated feature is what they they were they were pioneers. They started a revolution when it came to entertainment. They changed the whole fucking game. Snow White's all right, so. I was like, do I review this as a product of the time, or do I review this as what it is, based on, you know, today's movie standards? I have not looked at any other movie um, for, for being a product of its time. Like, if I say the animation is good, it's because the animation is good, just flat out. It's not good for when it was made, it's just good animation. Like, that shit with Monstro and Pinocchio still blows my fucking mind. And that was 1940, you know, like... Not, I think it's 1940. Uh, not too long after Snow White. Let's put it that way, because it was this. I'm pretty sure Pinocchio was the second one. Um, pretty, pretty goddamn positive about that. Just gonna double check that right now because I've been wrong about so many things in the past. So, so many things in the past of late. What movies have you made, Walt Disney Animation Studio? Oh, who gives a fuck? I'm probably right. Um, yes. Yes. Um, am I right? Oh, who cares? Anyway, so the movie itself is fine. I mean, it is, it is, you could put Snow White and Sleeping Beauty side by side and you would be like, they're basically the same fucking movie. It's just that Sleeping Beauty has, um, the apple and the witch and, uh, Snow White or no, Sleeping Beauty has the dragon and Snow White has the apple and the witch and the dwarves. Um, that being said, if I were to pick one of these movies to watch, it would absolutely be Snow White. Not only is the music more iconic and simply better, because instead of just Once Upon a Dream song over and over again, this one has Hi-Ho and Whistle While You Work and the, the Bath song and then that awesome song where they're just having like a fucking dance party and I want like functional copies of every single instrument they use in that scene, including the fucking piano with the with the fish totem pole shit i like i love it it's so fucking creative um so yeah i mean it was like musically it's it's awesome um i do not enjoy the the warble singing that snow white finds herself doing um also i'll say this just once that's not how echoes work um not in her song singing down the wishing well nor in uh hi-ho um that's it's just not how whistling or echoes work because 
uh, the echo in high O says a word that nobody else said. So that's just not how that works at all. Um, and her echoes were like musically timed out and that well was not deep enough in order for that to have been possible. So is the movie completely accurate? Surprisingly, no. One thing I do enjoy about this movie is that the vast majority of the dialogue outside of songs is actually said in verse. Pretty much everything the witch says like rhymes with, with things that she said. And it's all like said, um, in a, in a very particular style. And I thought that was a nice touch. Um, once again, just like Snow White, uh, in terms of movie time, she spends a remarkable, a remarkably short amount of time, um, actually in the coffin, like maybe a couple of minutes, you know, you get the sad, like everybody's crying scene. And then there's some car towel carts that pop up and they go like, um, they couldn't find it in their hearts to bury her. So they encased her within a glass and gold coffin. And then the prince shows up and faffs about for like an extra 40 seconds before he kisses her. And wouldn't you know it, they fixed it. So... I mean, it is it is a classic. The animation is pretty good. The music is really solid. Um, it is it, as I mean, as traditional a Disney movie as you could possibly get. This is the oldest Disney movie um, that they ever made. So you can definitely see where a lot of their later on characteristics came from. Uh, they all spawned from this, and a lot of later Disney movies very much pull inspiration from this particular. Uh, film. It's been hailed as like the greatest animated movie of all time because it's the first animated movie. Now, just because it's the first does not make it the best. I want to point that out. This movie still only gets a 7 out of 10. And, I mean, it's it's fine. Uh, it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly well animated. The story itself is very good. I enjoy the evil witch, I think. Um, or the, the queen. Whatever. What What is her actual character name? She, just the, the queen she is known as. Okay, so... I enjoyed, or the evil queen, rather. I very much enjoy the queen. Um, she is, she's an incredibly strong villain, especially compared to, like, you know, other Disney villains that come later that don't do nearly as much. Um, although I will say that this queen dies because she basically falls off a cliff and then is eaten by vultures. Um, so with all of her power, it, it didn't amount to much. And her downfall occurs remarkably quickly. So there's that as well. Um, Snow White really doesn't do much. She sings a lot, gets really scared in a forest, and that's a fun scene. I like that scene because it, nothing about the forest is scary, but she's in such a mindset that it, it, it looks terrifying, like log alligators and trees with faces and stuff like that, and it's a very fun scene. And it inspired one of the best rides in Disneyland, which is actually being changed. Um, Snow White's Scary Adventure, I think it's just what... I don't know what they're changing it to, but they got rid of the Scary Adventure bit, which kind of makes me sad. Um, cause I thought that was, that was the best. Um, yeah. Snow White's Enchanted Wish is what it's called now. Um, named Snow White's Scary Adventures until 2020. Uh, Snow White's Enchanted Wish. Oh, isn't that, isn't that so, isn't that so nice? Um, which I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh, she, she does try to cast a wish. I mean, that was the whole point of how the evil queen got her to eat the apple. It was like, it's a magic apple. You eat it and you get one wish. And Snow White's like, that sounds rad. And then she she tries to chomp it. And um, then it doesn't then it doesn't work out. Uh, supposedly, there's a live action adaptation of this in process. Um, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. I'm curious to see how they're going to do the dwarves. I guess we'll find out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's... It is good. Gets a 7 out of 10. Not a not a perfect movie by any means. There's nothing really that brings it down, except for the fact that it spends way too much time. Like, the pacing of it is, is the thing I have issues with. There's a whole lot of nothing for the first, like, 50-ish minutes of this movie. Um, and then it kind of kicks off towards the end, and then it just continues to plod along. So, it's just fine. You know? I honestly think Sleeping Beauty is, like, more exciting. Um, because, you know, there's a fucking dragon. And I, I prefer Maleficent to uh the evil queen just kind of as um and it's also really funny for me being a big fan of a once upon a time the abc drama where it takes all of these fucking characters and like turns them into like three-dimensional characters and um my memories of like the evil queen from that show because the evil queen in once upon a time is fucking awesome she starts she has such a great character arc throughout the, that the course of that show and i love it and so does snow white i mean those interpretations of the characters are are my like mental interpretations of the characters. In this movie, Snow White's so much like the the damsel in the distress, just kind of singing her songs to all of her fucking woodland friends while they clean the house for her. Uh, but in Once Upon a Time, Snow White is a fucking like 
ranger. She's got she's like incredible at archery, and she's so fucking kick ass and confident and powerful, and it's awesome. Um, so yeah, no, Snow White still gets a seven out of ten. Uh, now to watch a movie that is very recent that I'm pretty sure is gonna be perfect, but I need to double check. I was I was curious about this movie because I remember loving it when it first came out. I remember it made me cry like six times and yep it uh it lives up to the hype soul um pixar's latest movie the fact that this went straight to disney plus and didn't end up in theaters is understandable because of covid but it is absolutely criminal this movie is i mean it is damn near perfect i love it i love the the music i love the musical side of the story i love the lessons that are learned I love that they were able to do a story about the, the the dawn of life and the afterlife without bringing religion into it. I thought that was incredibly clever. Um, I think the performances are great. I think the animation is gorgeous. But it is kind of long. And, I mean, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but it does kind of drag its feet a little bit. Like, I'm all for him being a cat. That's fine. It does just kind of go. And it's not like any of those scenes are not important. It just seems to take like a cut. Like each each scene is like 5 to 10% longer than it needs to be. And it's not like those scenes are bad. It's just like, uh. And then there's a, there's a little bit too much like family guy cutaway humor. Which isn't bad, but again, it's just kind of like, you can probably get away with it like once or twice, but it does it just a few more times, and I'm just like, meh. And then there is the, it's the exact same dynamic of characters, Joe and 22, that you see in Bolt, that you see in Wreck-It Ralph. It's the exact, like, like the straight guy and the wacky one. Oh no, what's the wacky one gonna do? I'm so crazy. It's that shit. Um, which again is fine, um, but I'm just, uh, f- 9 out of 10. So close to a perfect movie, don't get me wrong, I absolutely adore this movie. It is a fabulous movie, it is a damn near perfect movie. It's just for me, there's a couple of things that I'm just like, not the fittest fair enough, so it does get knocked down a point. But 9 out of 10 on my scale is still fucking phenomenal. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who do consider this to be a perfect movie. However, if you do not like jazz, well, then I don't know what to tell you. Um, same reason why, like, I fucking love Coco. All the Coco and Soul have a lot of similarities, and they both am- tell amazing stories with music, at, not only at, like, the forefront, but used to support it. And it just shows the power of music and storytelling and how influential that is, because music is just emotion. You know, it's fucking wonderful. Um, and both of those movies get that down pat. Um, and they both talk about family quite a bit. And this one, this is like if you take the existentialism of Inside Out and mixed it with Coco in terms of music and family and stuff like that, then you get Soul. Um, and I, I love Soul. I think it, it is incredibly creative. I think the animation is some of the best I've ever seen. And it's 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 phenomenal. 9 out of 10. Solid, solid fucking movie. Thank you all very much for listening to this episode of me watching Disney movies. I did a quick count. We have 37 more movies to go. Um, well, I say movies. Some of them are like shorts and stuff. So, But I'm, I'm keeping that number at like 30. We have 37 pieces of media left on this list. Um, if any are added between now and when I record the final one, I will watch them just to just to make it so that it's fucking done. But um, we got we got some. I mean, in terms of classic Disney movies, we've got we got a couple of pretty big winners uh, coming down the pipeline. Uh, a couple that I'm pretty confident are going to be stinkers, and then uh, a whole laundry list of shit that I've never actually heard of. So that's going to be interesting. Um, but yeah, thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do, and uh, I'll see y'all next time. Have a good one, everyone.